0: Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, your podcast about the stuff that I already said, and I love making that joke every week, but it is what it is. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and every week I bring to you a story about rebels and radicals and pirates and things like that. Uh, This week, I am excited about a returning guest, Miriam Rochak. Miriam, Miriam, how are you doing today?
4: I'm doing okay. Happy to be
0: back. Miriam, is it fun that every time I introduce you on this podcast, I claim that the only thing that you've done of note is that you used to be a tall ship sailor, and at one point you all hijacked your own boat because you weren't getting paid and then started running the tours yourself?
4: Um, You know, I think it's, it's good to lead with my strengths. And my history of piracy is definitely that.
0: Yeah, not the fact that you save people for a living... Any of that stuff. And also with us is the voice of Sophie.
3: Hello. Sophie. <laughs> that's producer. not my that voice.
0: That is not
4: your usual voice. That's not my voice.
3: Hello, hello. I, I feel like I like my caffeine intake today is either too much or too little, and I don't know what it is. So this will be fun for everybody.
0: Well, there's only one way to attempt to fix that problem, and that's more caffeine. Because you can't take less caffeine. Yeah.
3: Yeah, we'll see how this goes, friends. Anyway So today,
0: I wanna to tell you a story about Blackbeard. Blackbeard the pirate. Who Margaret A
4: vast. Yeah. Stop right there. I am hijacking this podcast. Oh no. I'm seizing the means of podcast production. I'm taking over. I'm gonna tell you a story this time.
0: Yay, that's good. I didn't know that much about Blackbeard
4: um i you've you've probably seen the gay pirate show you could have faked it
0: yeah no totally that was like, pretty much my plan until you interrupted. i mean this was completely unscripted oh wow i'm so surprised my podcast has been hijacked
4: yes we haven't been planning this for months all right we're very good at fiction you you are actually good at fiction um this is about all the fiction i can handle producing so now that i've uh taken control mm-hmm. margaret yeah have you ever heard of a guy named Sholem Schwarzbard. a name that coincidentally means blackbeard in Yiddish.
0: (laughs) I have only heard the shortest Cliff Notes version of of this man.
4: I think when you say Cliff Notes version, you mean that um, you've been around me when I've consumed alcohol.
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You've heard me talk about
4: Sholem Schwarzbard because uh, if I'm drunk, I'm talking about Sholem Schwarzbard. Uh, Today, I am stone cold sober, and I'm going to tell you a lot about Sholem Schwarzbart, because he deserves more than my drunken ramblings at uh, people who are being very polite at me. (laughs) So he was an early 20th century clockmaker. He was a Yiddish poet. And he was also an anarchist, a veteran of two wars, a community self-defense organizer, and a remarkably successful one-hit wonder assassin and avatar of Jewish vengeance. Ooh. I, yeah, I think you're going to like him. Actually, I think he was a, a cool person, I think he did some cool stuff. Um, before I start, I want to say I am hugely indebted to the work of Kelly Johnson, who did a dissertation called Sholem Schwartzbard: Biography of a Jewish Assassin, uh, which is available online, um, and that has been my main source for info on Sholem's life. I also want to thank Anna Elena Torres, a poet, scholar of Yiddish studies, and anarchist history, who was incredibly helpful and kind. Iliua Dam and Kieran Finlayson were also very kind and helpful um, in terms of helping me get translated versions of Sholem's work. I also want to say uh, I'm not at any kind of basic level pro-assassination. I think assassination is often not a good strategy, broadly speaking. Um, There are exceptions, and I think this story is one of them, um, which I will make a case for when we get to that part. Uh, But for both legal and actual reasons, um, this Podcast should not be taken as an endorsement of Assassins, although it should be taken as an endorsement of Stephen Sondheim's Assassins. Is that the play? Yeah, it's musical. It's really good.
0: That's how anyone who knows who Shogosh is.
4: That's why people know how to pronounce Cholgosh.
0: Oh, whoops. (laughs) Cholgosh. That's why everyone else knew how to pronounce Cholgosh.
4: It's because you need more musical theater in your life, Margaret. I
0: do. Actually, that's not true. But, (laughs) uh, you know, we will... (laughs) Okay, but but clocks. This this man is a clockmaker?
4: He is, but we're going to actually start uh, when this man is a baby. Oh. He was born to Itze and Chaya Schwarzbard in the town of Ismail in what is now Ukraine in 1886. Just two years later, there was a czarist decree banning all Jews from the area. Uh, So his family left and headed to the city of Balta, uh, which was where they were originally from. Uh, But they'd left. Guess why?
0: Pogroms.
4: It was a pogrom.
0: Uh, um so if, pogroms if you're counting the answer to everything. Not the answer, it the sad answer. The reason.
4: Yeah, it's it's gonna come up a lot. Um so they oh. had left in in eighteen eighty-two due to a pogrom. So um, you know, if you're counting, that's six years and two moves due to anti-Semitic violence for Sholem's family. But um this moment here at age two, as far as I can tell, it marks the absolutely last time Sholem runs from anti-Semitism. Um, From here on out, it's all fighting. Yes, He did not have fond memories of growing up in Balta. He was actually very frustrated by the local Jewish community. He thought they were too urban and insufficiently focused on Jewish thought and religion. Um, He was like, and I'm paraphrasing from his own writing here, this place sucks. We don't even have any notable rabbinical scholars here. Ugh. Um, which is how I felt about mine. <laughs> I enjoyed that voiceover. Thank you, Mary. That's my that's my surly teen voice.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it, um,
4: and I could relate because that's uh, how I felt about as my hometown is about my hometown as a kid. Except instead of notable rabbinical scholars, it was all ages punk shows. But like you know, potato potato.
0: Yeah, exactly.
4: The the big advantage of being back in Balta was that that was where Itze and Kaya's extended families were. So there was a, a big community for them there. Uh, the family dynamics were actually very messy, um, irrelevant. I'm not going to get into it. There's like 18 people named Shmuel, and um, I'm just not, it, we're not going to get into it. Shulam's mother, Chaya, uh, supported her family with a seltzer business, which, apart from a story that gets confusing because of how many people named Shmuel are in it, is the most Jewish fucking thing I've ever heard. Yep. Chai actually died when Sholem was still young, um, and his father remarried. And at 10 years old, he got pulled out of religious school, uh, which he had loved. And Sholem's relationship with Judaism and Jewishness are pretty unique uh, for his time and place. And that kind of starts here, because Jewish texts were hugely important to him, but they were also something that he had been deprived of. Um, so his rebellion later in life managed to be against tradition, but not against religion.
0: Huh. Okay.
4: Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to me. We can talk about it more later uh, when we get to, like, what his beliefs ended up being. Uh, but he never got the full religious experience, so it wasn't something he felt the need to rebel against. And it's it's actually something I think a lot of radical Jews today might find resonant. But uh, yeah. like I said, we can get into that later. So once he's pulled out of school, he gets apprenticed to a clockmaker. Uh, old-fashioned apprenticeship, he works for this clockmaker, including doing chores Uh, around the house in exchange for training room and board
0: Mm -hmm. is the room like behind a secret puzzle wall where like, once the clock like chimes a certain thing then the door swings open and you only have like a few moments to get in and out
4: it's more of a a cuckoo clock situation you know his bed Mm -hmm. is on like a giant spring and at a certain hour it just shoots out and Mm -hmm. he's at work
0: yeah i'm glad
4: you asked about that actually I, i forgot to mention it yeah what he does not have, um, he does not get paid, and he is huh. a grumpy teen about it. He he uses the voice I was using before, which I, I that's like understandable. I don't think anyone asked him how he felt about you know an apprenticeship. Why am I doing where, this
0: labor and not getting paid? Ugh. Yeah, it's that, was weird. That
4: that's yeah, and um, it's funny you should mention that. He might have some feelings about that later. Hmm. He did learn how to make clocks, though, which is going to end up being his main job for the next few decades. Now, speaking of feelings about the compensation for your labor, mm-hmm. uh, pretty at 16, so you know, a few years later, someone invites Shulam to a socialist meeting, and he learns about a little thing called Marxism. And he's on board. He's fully in. He dives right in. But what he doesn't do is let go of his religious beliefs, um, which is a little mm-hmm. unusual. You know, most mm-hmm. leftist radicals then as now are secular or atheists, and he just decides God's on the side of the socialists. Mm-hmm. pisses off the other socialists. Uh, he actually says that one spat in his face and refused to talk to him after learning he believed in God. Seems <laughs> like a bit much, right?
0: <laughs> Fucking lords.
4: Exactly, they never change. Uh, but don't worry, he also went into Jewish religious spaces and offered radical socialist interpretations of sacred texts, uh-huh. uh, which pissed everyone off there too. So, okay. you know, it's, okay. it's the same everywhere. He's making friends exactly nowhere with this. Over the years, he's taking on more of a leading role in the local socialist scene, when at 19, he makes a trip to Odessa, you know, which is the big city, and mm-hmm. he brings back some extremely illegal radical socialist leaflets, uh, which he quietly distributes among trusted comrades. Sorry, mm-hmm. just kidding. Uh, he nails one to the fucking door uh. of the local noble estate. Uh-huh.
0: Okay. Okay.
4: <laughs> Because apart from Judaism and socialism, one of his most cherished beliefs is that subtlety is for cowards.
0: <laughs> I like that slogan. huh.
4: So pretty soon after this, uh, he's out on the street and he hears a mob of drunk Russian soldiers forming up to attack the town's Jews. Mm-hmm. So he retreats and gathers a group of sympathetic comrades, including experienced fighters, and forms a strategy to... <laughs> Sorry, uh, I'm kidding again. He, uh, he ran at the group all on his own and just started wailing on them with a <laughs> club that he called his socialist stick.
0: Uh-huh.
4: Uh, and he got the absolute shit beaten out of him. But it actually works because they were like looking for Jews who were not going to fight back. And so after, you know, meeting at least this much resistance from like one extremely fearless teenager with a stick, uh-huh. they're like, maybe not. They fucked off and they left right. the other Jews
0: alone. So so the way to interrupt bigoted violence in this case is to go hit people with a big stick?
4: Well, it worked for him.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, no notes. This sounds sarcastic, but I'm actually just excited about this. All right.
4: Yeah, so fighting anti-Semitism physically is part of his politics and, and even part of his religion. Um, years later, he compares himself to Moses, uh, describing how on another occasion he used a stick to beat soldiers, because he did that a lot, mm-hmm. who were attacking an old Jewish man. And he said, I showed that a rod was not only created to split the sea, but also to split the heads of hooligans.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> cool. I like Blackbeard so far.
4: Yeah, right? He fucking rules. I like this guy very much. The greater
0: Blackbeard, we'll call him.
4: Oh, Far and away, far and away the better Blackbeard. Now, around this time, he gets his hands on a gun, mm-hmm. through my absolute favorite means of all time. He buys it from a Russian soldier.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, uh, Margaret, you and I have talked about the whole issue of soldiers selling their guns back in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising episode. uh uh-huh. But what makes this incident a little different Uh-huh. Is he buys it from one of the soldiers who had been sent to arrest specifically him and his comrades? <laughs> I have literally no idea how this went down. I, <laughs> I assume the guy showed up and was like, you're under arrest. And Shulim was like, nah, man, that's not going to work for me. Cool gun, though. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the guy's just like, oh, this old thing for you, 20 Kopecks? rubles at whatever they had
0: uh-huh
4: um so he's got a gun now and uh-huh. the russian soldier was there to arrest him doesn't arrest him. i don't i do not know how this happened but
0: yeah i mean you're not going to successfully arrest the guy after you sell him your gun
4: right the balance of the power main... is
0: shifted in a fundamental way
4: absolutely yeah and now you have drinking money so what are you doing arresting this guy anyway you're gonna go good point. have some fun
0: yeah okay
4: works for everybody right okay and I, I have to say, you know, as with a lot of stuff Sholem does in this story, I don't necessarily recommend this approach. Um, right. Like it worked for him. Right. Can't imagine it working for any of people I know. Can't imagine it working for me, but um works out for him. He he goes back to Balta where his family is, and he can just tell that a pogrom is coming. Mm-hmm. You know, because like Jews in early 20th century Russia, Russian occupied land like had a pretty specific spidey sense about that, I
3: think.
0: I mean, it might have just been always on.
3: I was gonna say, you're, what you're describing sounds like a supernatural Spidey set situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I can't say like my
4: own anti-Semitism senses are that finely honed, but like there is a definite vibe alarm that goes off in my head sometimes. Um, I think it's called generational trauma. yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
3: Which uh, is unfortunately not supernatural and not fun like Spidey Senses and does not mean you can fly from building to building.
4: Well, I can, but that's because oh. of the radioactive spider bite, copy not that, because of generational trauma. You Good know. to
3: know. Good to know. <laughs> oh, it's
0: not its not inherent to Judaism.
3: No. Yeah. Shit. Hashtag not all Jews uh, but, um, can do that. I have that.
0: to correct some people that I've told some things. Okay. Anyway. <laughs>
4: We're always correcting misconceptions around here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he he organizes a few dozen people for community defense, and mm-hmm. when the pogrom comes, they build barricades and they try to fight off the attackers. Mm-hmm. He's got a cool new gun. He uses it. Now, unfortunately, Russian soldiers come to join the attack. It had been civilians primarily attacking mm-hmm. initially. Russian soldiers come and join, and the resistance fighters end up being pushed back. Some of them are killed. And they do fail to stop the pogrom, um, which obviously sounds like a defeat to us. Um, but it's much less devastating than the one that had hit the same place back in 1882. And so Sholem considers it a success that like, he was able to mitigate the harm that was done to the Jewish community.
0: What year is this?
4: Uh, that was in 1905.
0: Okay. So like around the same time as there was that revolution thing that almost worked.
4: Yes. We're going to talk some more about revolutions in this uh, Ooh. in this story, but not actually about that one. Okay, Sholem is busy fighting off pogroms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it, he considers it a success because the harm is like not as much as as it had been in the past. He also he fought alongside his dad, who joined him on the barricades. Oh, and he was actually the only one of the observant Jews in town to join the fight. Everybody else who joined was, like, more secular, and the observant Jews were just praying for help during the fighting. And for a guy with a gun, uh, Sholem was pretty respectful of this choice. Um, he was actually, like, kind of impressed by it, I think. Okay. But he had to be impressed while on the run, because now he's wanted for being a radical and for being a Jew who shoots at Christians. Um, and he apparently doesn't have enough money to buy all the guns off all the soldiers who were coming I was after to him. to say, yeah, like, yeah.
0: All right.
4: Uh, So instead he skips town. Mm -hmm. Uh, He heads to the border of Austria-Hungary. He starts going by nabat, which means alarm, because what's a leftist without a youthful phase of going by a one-word random noun name? Am I right?
5: Uh, (laughs) What? Magpie? What? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Boat face? (laughs) That was
0: what
4: I went by in my boat
0: face. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
4: Oh,
3: this is fun. (laughs)
4: So he gets to work uh, as Nabat, uh, smuggling guns, banned radical literature, and other people on the run over the border. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he also has to get a job. So he finds work making clocks and, like, also immediately starts organizing a garment workers' strike because the guy simply cannot help himself. Yeah. He gets ratted out to the authorities, though. He goes to jail for a few months. Okay, so now the most relatable part of the story, I think so mm-hmm. far, is uh, is coming. Pay attention. If you, uh, if you don't see yourself in Sholem yet, um, I think this is where it's going to change for a lot of listeners. So a woman uh, known to history only as Comrade Sophia uh, had taken an interest in Sholem. Um, she had actually been offering to pay his way to America so he could get away from the law because she knew he was on the run.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, he hadn't taken her up on it because he was like, no way, better to be arrested, die in Siberia, than abandon the... You know, blah, 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 martyr. This this isn't the relatable stuff, don't worry. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she works to get him released from prison. And he somehow makes parole. You know, maybe through her efforts, we're we're not really sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's out and being very good at getting across the border by now, he gets across the border and he is in Austria-Hungary when he stops and goes, Oh, she was like into me. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
4: <laughs> you know, like when you're talking with a girl, and then the next thing you know, you've gotten arrested and done a few months' time, gotten paroled, fled across the border, and then you're like, "Oh, she was hitting on me."
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh Sholem Schwarzbard was a lesbian. That's that's basically that had, my thesis. No <laughs>
0: counter argument to offer. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so anyway, they they
0: do not hook up uh, no. because he's over the border. Wait, um, but he comrade does- Sophia.
4: Comrade Sophia.
0: Is there like any, like, is this like person like weave their way through other stuff? Is this like a rich anarchist heiress? Like, like, who's who's Comrade Sophia?
4: I think she is whatever our imaginations want her to be at this point because we know like literally two things about her. <laughs> One she is isn't. she was in this time and place, and two,
0: she dug Sholem. All right. All right. Rich anarchist heiress. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe rich. Okay, well, let's not, we'll make maybe up a different story. Maybe rich anarchist story.
4: bank robber. We don't know.
0: Yeah, or like um, maybe like a gold digger who got the money the and, through honest work of gold digging and then turned around and used it. There's so many possibilities. Okay.
4: Yeah. Options are limitless. Um, yeah. So he d- he, they do, like I said, they do not hook up, but um, mm-hmm. he does refer to her as his first love, uh, which I think is very sweet.
0: Also very, like, Russian of that era to be, like, my first love, who I never really interacted with in any sense. Like, Yeah, exactly. Besides, like, some letters or whatever.
4: <laughs> who I loved from across the border. Um, yeah. He actually—he won't come back to Russia for over a decade. Uh, the next time he comes back to Russia uh, will be for the revolution, so— With a
0: U-Haul. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
4: exactly. But speaking of anarchists, he spends the next few years drifting around Austria-Hungary, working, leading strikes— And then finally, the moment we, or, you know, I was going to say at least I, but I'm sure you too, Margaret, were waiting for, he becomes an anarchist. Woo! He meets a man named uh, David Haskin, who introduced him to the philosophy. And like as soon as he is aware that anarchism is an option, he is fully on board, Uh, which I think is what happens to a lot of people. They're like, oh, you can like. Yeah. You can do that?
0: Yeah, that's a choice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been trying to make all these other different kludgy things fit together.
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to reconcile all this stuff and I can just be an anarchist?
0: Yeah, like Souls. no one can tell me that I can't believe it. Well, some anarchists would probably tell you you can't believe in God, but they don't have the the way to do that. Yeah. But do you know who else doesn't believe in God? Miriam?
4: Um,
3: Me?
0: Uh-huh. Some of the products and services Support this podcast.
3: you really never know what you're gonna get.
0: No, really, don't. It could just be like all Christian ministry ads.
3: It could be all Christian ministry ads. It's true. Well, they they need to revise their ad buying algorithm. If that's the case, they yeah. slip. They like we we like we're able to like kind of like block out categories, and you'd be surprised to see where they what they come in as labeled as in order to reach. Audiences that are totally not interested in them, but they... Yeah, it's That a thing. is kind
4: of the MO of missionaries.
3: Yeah. What do you think that Schwarzbard
0: would pick for a sponsor for this episode?
4: Clocks? Oh, Clocks are it great. He was mostly sponsored by Clocks, you know, yeah. for a lot of his life.
0: Much like Blackbeard himself, this show is sponsored by Clocks. Me. And we are back, and no one has thought to themselves, I wonder what else clocks could be used for in a direct action sense, like timing devices. Onward. All right. So when,
4: when last we left, Sholem had just become an anarchist.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so he gets involved with a group that is printing and distributing anarchist literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually pay people for their labor, which is sick. Cool. Yeah. But uh, Sholem actually turns the money down. And okay. he helps them with the money making operation that was supporting this, you know, zine manufacturing, which is smuggling saccharin, like the chemical sugar substitute.
0: Whoa. That's just yeah, that old. I,
4: it is. And like, it's that, um, I guess it was that restricted in um,
0: oh,
4: the saccharin
0: smuggling ring.
4: I have so many questions about the saccharin smuggling ring. I would have had to have done a lot of research that I, I already did a lot of research, so I wasn't going to look into like the economics of illegal saccharin operations. Maybe this is
0: how Comrade Sophia got her money. She does sound pretty sweet. Oh, uh, but but with kind of a weird aftertaste, you know, <laughs> the weird aftertaste being like cross-border longing. Yeah, exactly.
4: Anyway, I mean, I I'm just picturing it as like a cocaine smuggling operation, only like they're smuggling bricks of. Just fake sweetener, um, which is just very funny to me. Yeah, But anyway, while doing this, he uh, at some point is on the road with some buddies and they get arrested and detained as a thing I have also never heard of, um, like saccharine smuggling. um, Underage travelers, someone with more knowledge of Austro-Hungarian imperial law can maybe explain this to me, but he's like 22 at the time. So apparently it is illegal to be a 20-something wandering the roads of Austria-Hungary in 1908.
0: I know that a lot of different places in time there have been, I mean, frankly, like like internal passport type things where you're not allowed to go from place to place without certain permissions. I I don't know this about Austria-Hungary in 1908, but.
4: Okay, so there was just like rules about who could be on the road. Maybe. I don't know. Well, either way, he is not allowed to be on the road. Um, so he and his friends spent six weeks in a, something called an unofficial jail. Uh-huh. Uh, in the source I looked at, does this just um, mean they just didn't
0: have bribe money on them?
4: Well, that that'll come back. Um, okay, okay. So they're they're stuck there for six weeks. They're all they've all got lice. They're getting sick, and by this point, they're like in serious danger of somebody dying of their illness before some older prisoner is like, "Oh, you actually have to pay for your own release." Nobody told them that. They just kind of threw them in a cage and were like, eh, figure it out.
0: Unofficial jail is such a clear example of what actual jail is. Just a little right? bit like, distilled to the raw bits.
4: It's like how it's just you know, kidnapping if somebody grabs and you when you're walking down the street and throws you in a vehicle and like drives you away. That's kidnapping. But if a cop does it, it's like arrest. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... It's a it's a more obvious um, right. example Unofficial of this practice. jail, of locking people up in a cage. But so they find out they need to pay uh, a bribe or a fine mm-hmm. because a fine is just an official bribe. Yeah. <laughs> for their release, but obviously they don't have money, so they write to their you know zine making smuggling sacrament smuggling anarchist friends, and they get the money to be let go.
0: Mm-hmm. Now Sholem. This is actually where Cool Zone bad. Media got its start. Oh, nice! Yeah, it was a, It was actually this specific publishing ring in 1908. <laughs> I so like it. They like, took whatever. care of
4: their. They took care of their friends. Yeah. So he feels super bad about the movement having to waste money getting mm-hmm. his ass out of jail. So he decides he's going to pay them back. <laughs> he's having trouble finding work though, probably because of all the strikes <laughs> that mm-hmm. he keeps organizing everywhere he goes.
0: Uh-huh.
4: So he decides he's going to do an expropriation.
0: A crime.
4: Yeah. Margaret, tell the people what an expropriation is.
0: Expropriation is the fancy word for crime when you take things that belong to the rich people and you say now they belong to everyone else, but you don't want to use the word theft because you want to sound fancy. Did I get it right? Exactly.
4: Yeah, you want to throw some extra syllables in there. Yeah. Okay, so Sholem and his friend are going to rob a bar for the revolution.
0: Okay, so the straight edge.
4: (laughs) Yes, probably. All
0: right.
4: (laughs) Um, And they hatch a completely lousy plan. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
4: Just a a terrible dog shit plan. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Okay, here it is. You know, you can see if you spot the flaw, as I describe it. Uh Uh-huh. The two of them go into a bar together. Uh Uh-huh. The friend stands at the bar, has a couple of drinks, and then leaves, while Sholem hides himself away in a dark corner. Uh waits for the bar to close and the staff to lock up and go home. Then he comes out and he robs the till and he passes the money out to his friend through a crack in the metal window coverings.
0: Mm -hmm. So there's two problems. Do you see the flaw? Okay. There's two problems. One is this is how you rob money in the game. Morrowind, an old role-playing game. If you want to steal money in that game, you go into the store and you hit T for wait. And then you just wait for the store to be closed. And then there's no one there, and then you can rob it. And so the idea that that in in real life doesn't. The other problem is that if you pass the money through, you're still inside.
4: Yeah, that's correct. Um, There is no actual plan for Sholem to get out. Uh (laughs) He is in there in the morning (laughs) Uh
0: with the money gone. Hey, I must have passed out drunk because I'm not straight edge, he said. It's,
4: yeah, it's it's literally, I don't know what happened to the money. I was passed out the whole time. Um, It's literally the worst plan. Uh-huh. Um, you know what it feels like to me? It's like, okay, you know I love heist movies. Mm-hmm. You know the low point of a heist movie where it looks like the gang's been caught, you know, and the plan's failed? And then, like, oh, what's this? It's the secret part of the plan they didn't tell the audience about, and everything uh-huh. is actually fine, and it's so much cleverer and more complicated than you realized. And, like, actually, the crew was the SWAT team, you know? Uh-huh. They forgot to do that part.
0: Oh, no. They it, they didn't <laughs> secretly own the bar? No, they
4: forgot to do the twist. Ah. Oh. No understanding of the narrative conventions of heists. Oh. It's embarrassing, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah.
4: Now, the, the bar also claims that they stole about three times as much as Sholem says he stole. And he has no way to dispute that. So he's charged with, you know, because it's gone. So he's charged with stealing more money than he did. Mm-hmm. But, importantly, he does not give up the name of the friend. You okay. know, the one who took zero risk and left him locked inside the bar all night to be arrested in the morning.
0: Hey, it was probably his idea. So, you know what? Schwarzbart idea. So, the friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, this has young idealist idea written all over it. Yeah. <laughs> but this is actually pretty huge because there's very good reason to think that the friend is a guy known to history as Peter the Painter. Now, Margaret, have you heard of Peter the Painter?
0: I've heard the name, but I, I I don't know tell tell me who Peter the painter is. He's hanging out with comrade Sophia
4: okay, so this is this is going to be kind of a lengthy sidebar because this story really has nothing to do with the rest of the story, but I think it's very cool, so I'd like to real quick talk about it okay Peter the painter's real name is maybe uh Janish uh, maybe not. Uh, We don't actually know who he was or where exactly he came from. Uh, We know he was a Latvian anarchist who moved to London sometime after this whole bar heist thing, Mm
0: -hmm.
4: um, which is where history really catches his scent.
0: Is he a painter?
4: See, I didn't do a deep dive on him because, you know, this is Mm -hmm. Sholem's story, not Peter's. But uh, I could not figure out why he was called Peter the painter. Somebody with, like, more time on their hands than me can figure out why he was called Peter the painter. What a
0: punk name. Right? Like, you're... Ah, oh, I'm Peter the Painter, but your name's not Peter. Yeah, I'm not a painter either. <laughs> and then, like, that's, like, funny the first time you have to say it, but then you have to say it six times a night for the rest of your life, but you keep up the bit. Okay.
4: Yeah. So he joins a London-based Latvian anarchist group that pulled off expropriations. Mm-hmm. And when they were caught busting into a jeweler's in 1911, they killed not one, not two, but three cops. Wow. Um, a lot of people think Peter specifically is the one who killed them. I have no idea. Neither does anyone else. He was definitely there at the time. Now, as you can imagine, this started a major manhunt, which was a problem for the London police uh, because they were looking for a Latvian gang based in a Russian Jewish neighborhood and they did not have anyone on the force who spoke Latvian, Yiddish or Russian. <laughs> <laughs> Cops are dumb.
0: <laughs> very quiet to me.
4: So two members of the gang ended up holed up in a house and 750 cops uh, as shit. well as the then interior minister Winston fucking Churchill showed Holy up shit. to lay siege to the place. Uh-huh. And they exchanged some gunshots and after about 7 hours the house burned down under uh, unclear circumstances mm-hmm. and both anarchists inside were killed. Um, Winston Churchill personally gave the order to the fire department to let the building burn down just in case you needed another reason to hate that fucking guy.
0: Damn, Peter the Painter.
4: Well, Peter the Painter was not one of the guys who died in the fire. What?
0: Okay. And he was not arrested
4: after this. He just vanished. Yeah. And no one knows what happened to him after that.
0: Yeah. Peter the Painter is still with us. He could be here right now. It could be
4: me. Who knows? I mean,
0: Comrade Sophia is clearly Sophie.
4: I wasn't going to say
0: it, but. Oh, sorry. Security culture. Okay. Mm. None of you heard that. <laughs>
3: Doxing me. That's cool. Mm. Um. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Also, no. <laughs> uh-huh. <Okay. laughs> Sophie's, Sophie's never claimed to be Sophia's. So, oh, oh, okay. yeah. Is there a rivalry there? Uh, uh, I guess so. Wait,
0: does that mean you're Peter the painter?
3: Oh shit! You figured it out. Well, this
4: is awkward. This is. We awkward. can edit this out.
3: Yeah, maybe. The
4: London police are definitely still looking for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So anyway.
4: Um, well, <laughs> so actually, so he becomes a legend, right? As this like mm-hmm. elusive criminal slash um, rebel
0: slash There's a
4: yeah slash possibly a painter. Um, there's actually a, a gun that like is supposed to be the gun that the type of gun that he used becomes known as the Peter, the painter in, I think the Irish, um, you would know better than me, Irish conflict in the 1920s. The, the civil
0: war, the, the revolution the war. or the civil war. Okay.
4: Yes. Um, but there's a gun named after him as this like mm. random cool guy who killed three English police officers.
0: Painting the walls with blood, am I right? That's um, that's how Peter the Painter uh, got his name. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So this was maybe the guy. Sorry.
4: Wait, wait, wait! I'm not done. Oh, with whoa. Peter the Painter's legacy. I'm sorry. All right. All right. Because in 2008, there were two tower blocks built in London, and they were named Peter House and Painter House, and the London
0: police <laughs> were fucking furious because <laughs> of a hundred fucking. Years. I mean. Fair enough, but like <laughs>
4: Because Yeah, because they were like a hundred years ago, this guy killed three of us. And everyone else was like, Well, we don't know for sure that he killed any cops. He's a folk hero. Leave us alone. A cab, you know? It could
0: have been his two friends who he was in cahoots with. He died <laughs> exactly. in a
4: fire. So they don't they don't listen to the London cops and they just make Peter House and Painter House, which I think is really nice. Hell yeah. Um so yeah, that is the guy okay. that um allegedly uh, Sholem did this absolutely bird-brained robbery with yeah, in yeah. 1908.
0: I mean, Peter the Painter does not have a good success rate. Let's be real. Getting away, no. it is not a very good idea to do crime with Peter the Painter.
4: No, it is a very good idea to be Peter yes. the Painter if you are doing crime because he will get out of there. Yeah. He will be yeah. absolutely fine. Yeah. His comrades will end up in jail or burned alive. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. All right. So Sholem doesn't give up his name and serve... Four months hard labor. Okay. Which I think he's sort of fine with because he's like, well, it's not money and I'm trying to pay back the money. Yeah, yeah. To the to the movement. So, like, it's basically free to do four months hard labor. So once he's out, yeah, it's hard to find work, uh, you know, which is a familiar story for people getting out of incarceration. Yeah. So, you know, he goes wandering again. He does odd jobs. Eventually, he winds up in the Carpathian Mountains uh, where two things happen. First, as he starts writing poetry, and mm-hmm. the second, probably not coincidentally, is he falls in love. His second love. Yeah, his second love. It also doesn't work out. Oh. Um, the woman he's fallen in love with has a family that finds his level of piety inadequate, um, You Whoa. know, which I think is harsh.
0: I know. Because he's very pious. Yeah. You know. He can do better. Yeah. She's missing out. Well,
4: yeah. They don't know what they're missing in a son outlaw. Yeah. So, you know, he leaves feeling all bitter and romantic, and he keeps writing poetry because feeling bitter and romantic has to be good for something. Yeah. I'm not going to share any of his poetry at this moment, but I will later.
3: I think it's nice. What a I think cliffhanger. it's good. Um, okay. Some yeah, people say, are mean to, about his- Way to dangle that <laughs> like
4: yeah. carrot in front of our face. <laughs> some people are mean about his poetry. I'm not going to be mean about his poetry. People are mean I'm about excited. a lot of people.
0: Yeah. People are really mean about Louise Michel's poetry.
4: Ah. <sighs> Absolute dicks. Just yeah. um and actually um one of the people that I mentioned um who helped me out with the research for this, um Anna Elena Torres has a, a forthcoming book that will be linked in the show notes that will include uh translations of more of his poetry. That so if you're like, I want to hear more of that, that's how you can follow up.
0: It's called <laughs> Oh Noetry by <laughs> Peter the Painter's Friend.
4: Peter the Painter's Friend. So, during this round of travels, he meets, for the first time, Zionists.
0: Dun, dun, dun.
4: Boo. He is not a Zionist. You know, he's an anarchist. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's very much a Jewish nationalist, Mm -hmm. but he's against the formation of a nation state. Okay. And there's kind of this weird thing going on where Zionists like him because he's a Jewish nationalist. But when they publish his work, sometimes they just cut out anti-Zionist parts of
0: it. Oof. That would suck his, so much.
4: Right? And his biographer, Kelly Johnson, um, describes his relationship with them as indicative of his, quote, openness to political persuasions different from his own. Okay. Uh, which he super needed uh, because he occupies a political position that is at the overlapping of so many different Venn diagram circles that it's it's basically just him in yeah. there. Um, You know, other anarchists are put off by his Jewish nationalism, other Jewish nationalists are put off by his anarchism, religious Jews are put off by his anarchism, and anarchists are put off by his religiousness, you know, so it's like...
0: And then everyone's put off by his poetry.
4: No, I'm not. (laughs) I
0: haven't read it.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so basically the only person whose beliefs Sholem will mostly identify with um, is the man who will later become his mentor Rabbi Yaakov Zalkind. He's not actually in the story at this point in the story, but I just want to bring him up because we're talking about his beliefs. Um, Everyone should read more about him. Um, Again, uh, uh, Torres has an essay about him available online. Zalkind actually started out as a Zionist, but then he became an anarchist. And while he retained a desire to create a stateless community of Jews, Arabs, and everyone else in Palestine— Um, He writes that because Zion, he later writes that because Zionism displaced people to make a home for Jewish refugees, quote, our first step into the realm of colonialistic ethics is a mark of shame for the Jews, which can never be washed off. It is the blackest blood to have been written into the black history of colonial politics, a crime of which the conquistadors of America would barely have been able.
0: Damn, subtleties for cowards.
4: Subtleties for cowards. (laughs) Zalkind also once broke his cane over some Nazis. Um, yeah, he rules. <laughs> yeah, um, he takes a mystical and revolutionary approach to Judaism, which sees mm-hmm. anarchism as a fundamental aspect of Jewish tradition and, ch- and teaching. Which uh, I dig, even though I'm not particularly into mysticism, I think it's very cool. And I bring up Zalkind and Sholem's you know, fairly unpopular at the time beliefs because I think there's a lot for contemporary people, especially contemporary. Jewish radicals uh, in their thinking. If I can sort of do inside baseball on uh, anarchist Jews for a second here. Yeah. I I recently saw a scholar of Yiddish anarchism comment that contemporary Jewish anarchists seem to be turning back towards religion, engaging with Jewish religious thought and ritual a lot more than, say, Emma Goldman's generation did.
0: Mm -hmm. Friend of the pod. If if anyone wants to know Emma (laughs) Goldman is, uh, the, the birth control episode talks about her.
4: Absolute friend of the pod, she will return yeah. later in this story. Cool. You know, but but that that shift was kind of framed as a betrayal. Like the anarchists, you know, who famously held balls and picnics on Yom Kippur would be disappointed in their philosophical descendants for re-engaging with religion. And I disagree. You know, firstly, I think it would be way more disappointing if we just imitated our predecessors. Yeah. Like that's just being prisoners to a different tradition. Um, I think it's our obligation to our anarchist forebears not to turn them into the authorities that they hated. And, like, it makes a ton of sense to me that we have a different relationship to Jewish religious practice because people like Emma Goldman
0: grew up oppressed.
4: Damn it, Margaret.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Please continue.
4: (laughs) You know, they grew up oppressed by their community's religion in a very real way. Like, I think you talked about this in the birth control episode that, you know, her father told her, you know, all a Jewish girl needs to know how to do is make gefilte fish and pop out babies, right? And, like, when that's the version of a religion that you grew up with, it makes sense to rebel against it. Yeah. And many contemporary Jewish anarchists, like, including me— We grew up in liberal, secular Jewish homes. And so a lot of us weren't oppressed by Jewish tradition. And, you know, especially in a post-Holocaust environment, a lot of the turning away from Jewish culture that was popular in the early 20th century Mm -hmm. feels less like liberation and more like assimilation. So, you know, as an atheist, anarchist Jew, I think there are Basically, infinite ways to be an anarchist Jew, which rules. And Zalkind and Schwartzbard offer a really interesting example of some ways to do that. You know, not my way exactly because they believe in God, yeah. but uh, still an interesting thing that I think people relate to. And you know, who else offers a really interesting way to be an anarchist Jew? Clocks, exactly. And other goods and services.
0: We're so good at this. We're we're like and we're we're fucking pros.
4: Yeah. We're really good at ad transitions. So Co-signing
3: know professionals, yeah, love to see it.
0: We, you know who else likes to be paid for their labor? Us. Everybody. Yeah. To
3: say. To say.
0: Here's some advertisements. Me.
5: right rug flooring
0: We are back and we are talking about the devices that slowly tick forward reminding us of our doom
4: clocks You mean devices that progress ever forward bringing about the inevitability of revolution
0: Marxist clocks
4: Yeah, I guess so.
0: No, but what you're saying about this like ritual stuff is it actually is really interesting to me because I think that that is one of the things I've noticed that I'm not Jewish, people probably are aware of that. But I've noticed that with a lot of the the more religious radicals, like not like radically religious, but the people who are radical who who um are religious or care about their like um religious cultural backgrounds and things like that. It's just really interesting to me because yeah, people are coming from just completely different contexts. And I really appreciate that people are applying their current context to a situation instead of just kind of yeah. Blindly saying, well, someone from the 19th century, I said, I have to do this. So I have to do that. I just reiterated what you said, but it sounded really clever when I said it.
4: (laughs) No, but I mean, I'm, I'm glad that it has like some resonance for people coming from other religious, you know, and cultural traditions. That's, you know, I think there's a lot here for people who are coming from wherever. I think everyone should read more about these traditions. I think they're great.
0: Yeah. Or when in doubt, just break your cane over Nazis.
4: I mean, always. If you,
0: if you can't figure out the rest of the shit, just fucking break your cane over Nazis.
4: We sh- I should add, I super don't have time mm-hmm. to get into it, um, but there is good reason to think that Sholem didn't spend his whole life believing in God mm-hmm. based on private correspondences that I don't really have access to because the Duolingo owl has not yet gotten me to like that point of Yiddish fluency. <laughs>
0: the, the, the talking about <laughs> uh, 1917 uh Russian politics level. Yeah. You know, okay.
4: This is this is the Menshevik super relevant, versus
0: but... Bolshevik debate is not adequately covered <laughs> in Duolingo. I uh
4: my my um parts of my family speak Czech, but I didn't really grow mm-hmm. up speaking it. So when I got to college I took a class and like tried to learn Czech and I was giving a report in class in Czech on um Jan Hus, which was who was a famous Czech heretic. mm mm-hmm. And then the professor like started asking me questions and I realized I was supposed to be explaining transubstantiation in Czech when I don't even understand it in English.
0: No one does. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like I
4: was like, so bread
0: equals uh... people. <laughs> Cannibalism in Czech. It
4: was very uh yeah. very embarrassing. Yeah. Are there any other anyway, embarrassing
0: yeah. stories that you would like to tell right now? It's just us. That's,
4: that's all I've got. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I'd love to do more research on, like, Sholem's personal beliefs, but uh, I didn't. Um, so yeah. I'm kind of going with, like, mm-hmm. publicly he he really always expressed belief in God, so. Yeah. So around this time, Sholem goes to Paris. He spends four years there, and he spends the entire time outside of jail. Whoa. Yeah, Progress. pretty good run. He also meets a woman named Anna. She is a Jewish immigrant from Odessa. Mm-hmm. They hit it off, uh, fall in love, and Sholem, of course, writes home to his father to tell him about this wonderful girl that he's met. But then, like halfway through the letter, he changes the subject to how he's thinking of starting a group to take vengeance on behalf of Jews murdered in pogroms. Mm. <laughs> uh-huh. For, uh huh. For what? To quote. For one drop of innocent blood, for one violated Jewish girl, we will destroy all their cities. Our motto, tremble, for a day is coming. An ominous day of reckoning for all bloodthirsty beasts.
0: I I hope, as long as Anna is cool with this, this just rules. If Anna feels uh, a little bit, like, sidelined, it's not so great. But if Anna's down...
4: such bad news about that.
0: No! Right. Don't sideline Anna. Schwarzbard, you must be perfect in every way. This is uncomplicated cool people with Margaret and Miriam.
4: <laughs> Are you reading my script? Because, like, literally oh. the next paragraph is about how he sidelines Anna. Oh,
0: okay, fine. Uh, tell me about how he sidelines Anna. You can't Mark. have nice things because so of patriarchy.
4: I know. It's it's the worst. So, at this point, he's 28. Mm-hmm. He's got no sense of self-preservation, mm-hmm. and the First World War breaks out.
0: Does he join? Is he Is he Team Kropotkin?
4: Uh, That is all. Are you reading my script? No. Okay. So um, he marries Anna Mm -hmm. and then he immediately volunteers to fight. Yeah. Anna is not happy about this, which is going to become a pattern because he makes major decisions without consulting her and then acts fucking baffled when she responds with anything but unbridled support and hero worship.
0: Motherfucker. All right. Uh Uh-huh.
4: It's it's absolutely a theme of historical anarchists uh, that while they sound like rad people, they also sound like absolutely terrible partners. Uh, I wish you were an exception. He is not. But Margaret, since you bring it up, can you tell us how anarchists felt about World War One?
0: I? I only kind of get uh, got into this because it's it's like a part of the history that like isn't really cool. People who did cool stuff. It's messy stuff that messy people felt messy about. But there was this whole big split where. Um, half the people, half the anarchists were like, we need to stay the goddamn ever-loving fuck out of this war uh, because this is a war between nation-states and pas- not pacifism, but anti-militarism is the only useful response. And then there was another half, most notably led by uh, P- Prince Peter Kropotkin, who I believe first came up in our Nihilist episode. Friend
4: of the pod. Yeah,
0: and he's like one of the... He, he did a lot of cool stuff for like evolution and and all this. But he was like, well... Germany is being bad, and stopping Germany is good, and and I I mostly know about it because people try to draw parallels to Russia invasion of Ukraine and all this stuff. I am not trying to opine about this. I have no opinion about this. I haven't looked into it enough. Um, Miriam, Margaret, you don't have a hot take
4: on World War One.
0: I know. I'm about. I could have hot takes about other stuff. Um, (laughs) uh, Potato is the better way to pronounce it.
4: Controversial, yeah, uh.
0: that's how you pronounce World War One <laughs> 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 all right, Miriam
4: uh, yeah, so i I my understanding of Kropotkin's position here mm-hmm. is that, in addition to like Germany as being bad, he was basically like France is right now the best bastion of liberty we have going
0: because uh, they're like a republic or whatever,
4: yeah, or whatever, yeah, something like that. Um, so it's it's very important to prevent it from being occupied by an imperial power, mm-hmm. and that's basically the page that Sholem is on. Okay. Um, and but it was more, like a little more complicated. He also wanted to join because he wanted to prove that Jews were willing to fight, which you know we've we've seen has been important to him.
0: Uh, sure, I mean, fight what is <laughs>
4: just fight anything, I guess. All
0: right, that guy. <laughs> fuck that guy.
4: Yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs>
0: Um, I mean, I guess Germany was invading a country. Anyway.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, like, most people um, could look at this situation and be like, well, we know which side is wrong here. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. just a little harder to find a side that's right. Yeah. hmm You know, so basically he thinks defending France from German militarism is more important than remaining anti-militarist himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does not... Stop him from being, you know, deeply critical of the side he's on. Mm -hmm. Um, He's in the Foreign Legion because he's not a citizen. Um, And he says of the average professional legionary who he's fighting alongside, in their work, civilizing, civilizing is in quotes, the quiet inhabitants of Africa, killing the men, raping the women, and through various military reports, they reach a certain rank, become a corporal, and receive a copper soldier's medal. This is the sum of their morality.
0: I mean, and it's so interesting, right, because this is— like France is a colonial power, right? It's just not, it didn't colonize another country in Europe just now. Right, and he
4: recognizes that, right? He's like, these guys are colonial pieces of shit and I hate them. Yeah. And he even, I mean, I think it's kind of notable that like his disgusted description of French colonialism in Africa uses fairly similar language to how he describes pogroms. Yeah. Elsewhere, so... I mean, it's pretty clear he feels more solidarity with the victims of colonization than the guys that he's fighting alongside. Right. But he still fights alongside Right. He them. didn't go volunteer
0: so, to go fight the French in Africa. He volunteered. I'm not trying to like. Right. Well, I am a little no. bit trying to drag him. But like, it's just like this yeah. interesting blind spot. No, valid. Spot, you know?
4: Yeah. Like he recognizes that what, that, you know, the whole idea of Kropotkin's whole idea that like France is this bastion of liberty is like, mm, is it? Yeah. Um, You know? Maybe in France. Yeah, but um, yeah, he he recognizes that, but like also really wants to go fight, or really thinks he should go fight.
0: Yeah, Poe buddies so. nerfed.
4: Yeah, but um, I think we're gonna have to leave it there for now because um, the next. Chapter on my outline here is war experience, and we're going to get into some World War One shit cool. and poetry. Cool. So when we return, World War One shit. Uh, no, Margaret, I know what you're thinking. We haven't talked about assassination at all. We haven't. Uh, you're right. It's going to be a minute, but it's coming, I swear. I didn't just say assassination to like get you interested. It, it is definitely going to happen.
0: No, you said clocks to get me interested. And there's been so few <laughs> clocks.
4: So the clocks are always in the background. They're, they're always ticking away in the background. All right, all paying right. for paying for Sholem's like continued yeah. existence. Right. And,
3: and speaking of clocks, it's about that time uh, uh, for uh, pluggables. I hate myself. That was horrible.
0: <laughs> we all Margaret, do, do you do. do you happen
3: to have a book that's out that people can purchase?
0: Why, yes. I have a book called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow that is available from AK Press. It's short fiction. If you've listened to any other episode of this podcast, you've heard me talk about it. And you can follow me on the internet by looking my name up.
3: Cool. Miriam? The looks Mr. really good. Miriam, is there anything you'd like to plug?
4: Uh, uh, um, I encourage people to go to landback.org And um, there's some really cool education resources there, and also um, you can give them some money, and they can uh, work on land back projects. Awesome.
0: All right then. Until Wednesday. Until Wednesday, I'm
4: going to go away for several days, and then talk to you more.
0: That's right. We aren't just going to record the second half after a five minute break. (laughs) Ha ha! Five minute break for us. Twenty four hour, forty eight hour long break for you.
3: Bye. cool people who did cool stuff is a production of cool zone media for more podcasts on cool zone media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
5: right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring